and welcome to Ask Me Anything About Employment with Peggy Schwarbuck. My name is David and I'll be your moderator today. This webinar is not a presentation but an interactive question and answer period and for the next hour Peggy will take your questions about engaging the vocational process uh, and questions about health and wellness. Peggy works at the Collaborative Support Program of New Jersey coordinating activities for the wellness industry. She is also part of time associate professor at Rutgers University. Peggy is involved in research, training, and consultation activities in the areas of wellness and health promotion, employment services, the role of peer support workers, and strategies for enhancing recovery through participation in valued occupations. Today's event is a part of the National Resource Center on Employment, jointly funded by the National Institute on Disability Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research and the Center for Mental Health Services. The content of this webinar does not represent the views or policies of the funding agencies and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. <clears throat> During the registration for this event, you are given the opportunity to submit a question in advance. Over the course of the webinar, we will alternate between questions submitted in advance and the ones you have today. To ask a question by phone, please indicate that you would like to in the chat box and when called upon, you can press star star to unmute your phone. You may also type your question if you'd like and I'll read them to Peggy on your behalf. Uh, your participation is really important uh, and critical to the success of this event. As a reminder, if you should have joined us by telephone, please make sure to mute your computer speakers before asking a question. It will cause an echo sound that is not pleasing to anyone listening. Welcome to the webinar and I hope you enjoy the next hour. Uh, Peggy, we're going to get started with the questions submitted during registration. And if anyone would like to start typing questions they have now, please go ahead. How are you doing, Peggy? Great. Thanks very much for having me today. I'm really happy to be here and talk to you guys about, you know, answer some questions and really have a good dialogue today about really physical wellness for work. Great. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that, too. Um, let's take a first question. This one's from, uh, and I'm, I'm apologize if I pronounced this wrong, Maybell. Uh, what do we tell our patients who don't seek employment for fear of losing entitlement? So the question about, you know, working with people um, who often really want to work or are thinking about it, who often have the fear of losing the entitlement, um, what I, I mean, this is a common uh, concern and a common question that's brought up or comes up in a lot of conversations. And what I, we like to try to do or how to approach this issue is to try to really talk to people about their reason for wanting to work, kind of looking at what are the reasons, because if someone's saying they don't seek it, they want to seek it, but they fear losing the entitlements, we really go to the question around what are you looking to do, why do you want to work, and what's that seem like, because a lot of times when people can strengthen their reasons for wanting to work, often they can help to look forward how to break down some of the barriers that are there. As a person who was on Social Security for a period of time and made that decision, I know that is a challenge. Um, I've also had the experience of really working through that question and been really able to help other people to look through that question. And many have successfully worked through the fears and been able to successfully you know, um, get off the entitlements and uh, pursue full-time work and others part-time work. That's so I think it's a really around exploring and helping people to strengthen their reason and their readiness around working. Yeah, the, what you're hearing rings true for a number of the previous Ask Me Anything sessions we've had so far. Uh, Joan Rapp talked about people looking to have, about how to maximize their income instead of just their entitlement and how can they can bring in the most money instead of worrying about just what they're losing looking at what they can gain as well. Accurate. Yeah, and I had a, we had an example about 10 years ago at our agency. We're a peer-run organization where we, um, I was very fortunate to be part of a project where we were able to create um, full-time work positions for people in recovery. And at the time, it was a little controversial, and I encouraged them to put in the grant a full-time rather than a part-time position as a manager and the idea was we needed to hire 22 people pretty quick, and people didn't think that people would step up to the plate because for many of them it was much more advantageous at that time to stay on their entitlements. And uh, we were able to hire the 21 people 
uh, over that period of time, and I'm happy to say some many of them are still in that position, and many of them have moved on to other positions, so they actually transcended needing, you know, entitlements and were able to move into the full-time work. And so it just, and I know 10 years later, it's a study we should write up on. It, it's, they're still in work, and, I, and many of them would continue to say that it was much more cost-effective for them to keep their housing entitlement, their food stamp entitlement, but they were so much, uh, they took that, they worked through the fear, and they were given, you know, the opportunity to really have a, a, a job that they really love and, you know, be able to not have to worry about filling out those paperwork every year, every um, year after year. You know, Alfonso in the chat box is asking a question uh, right now about, is there a federal guide about how one ends up losing their entitlements and, you know, what what happens? At what point do you lose them and how did you get them back? Yeah, I, b- I believe there are, um, this, there's a lot of um, entitlement, people who really specialize in this kind of work in uh, many individual placement and support teams, IPS teams, supported employment teams, um, have usually someone or many of the staff that are working on those teams are usually pretty well-versed in what are the um, limits. And um, it is something, though, we really encourage people to really work with someone that they're, whether it's a supported employment person and or someone, and really work directly with um, the Social Security Administration because often if people's situation is very ind- individualized and there's usually not a one answer for every person in certain entitlement categories. So it's something you have to really work through is an individual or getting someone to support you through that process. So we really encourage people to make an informed decision based on working and finding out who that right person is to talk to and finding out the right details around how much can I make at, you know, and at what point do I lose my, um, you know, lose different types of things. And and many people do do go through that process, though. And it looks like some people are saying there's a transitional um, um, program we're seeing um, in the chat box. Yep. So the Thunderbird Clubhouse wrote, at Clubhouse International, we have a transitional program where staff accompanies the employee and coaches them on the job. Uh, they ask, go on to ask a question. Have you heard of this sort of program with other organizations? Yeah, well, that seems like that is the clubhouse model with the transitional uh, supported employment and a variation of that with supported employment programs, individual placement and support would be um, that the supported employment worker, whether that's a peer or non-peer, often is the coach, will coach people um, on their, is that's a big piece of supported, um, IPS supported employment. Uh, Diane, and just kind of moving on here, Diane asks a question, and she says, one of the burning questions in Iowa is what is the going compensation rate for peer support? Do you know anything about that? For peer support specialists in Iowa, I'm not exactly sure, but a place where you can get some information about that might be the International Association of Peer Specialists, INAP, and um they have been doing some uh, scans around the country of what are the average, um, you know, rate. I do believe the average rate, though this is not Iowa, for they may be on a, you know, not below the average, is about twelve sixty an hour. That's the average that I've heard um, when you from in, in a couple of different um, slight studies of people gathering that information from. Uh, states and programs around the country. Great, and it looks like if you're reading the chat, Diane, Diane got got exactly. Uh, let's move on to another question that was submitted in advance. So this one is from Sabrina. She asks, "What's the most effective strategy for managing my anxiety while at?" Yeah, that's a big question, and uh, um, one of the things that um, you know um, would be important to think about is. Um, you know what what is your anxiety what happens with anxiety like for you it may be you know figuring out what that is it and um then finding what what are some of the stress ways you can manage that so um um for some people it's really figuring out how to um pace your workload and then maybe taking breaks where you can get away from the work environment. So if anxiety is provoked by something in the work environment or something about the pace of the work you have to do, often people will find it's really useful to take that break away and get out for a fresh breath of fresh air. Um, 
if your anxiety is really related to um, things around other people, um, you know, dealing with other people in the environment that cause impact and anxiety, it may often be working with your supervisor or working with somebody at the agency to see, be in a location maybe where you're not exposed so much to people so you can have your workspace be in a comfortable way that's not provoking your anxiety. So it's really hard to know exact an exact answer for you for sure, Sabrina, unless maybe you want to give us a little more uh, general ideas about what happens. But the idea would be to be thinking about when the anxiety comes about and what are some of those things that are triggering it and then figuring out really most important in managing anxiety what you can do. And that's really a powerful thing because we can do things. We can figure out ways to take that break, figure out ways to go get a cup of water, you know, find those things you could do in your work environment to um, manage your anxiety. I had a one example where, um, you know, I was working at a state hospital and um, one of the things that I found was really helpful was like before, because I, I deal with a lot of anxiety too, is I used to like almost do a meditation as I got to the job, and I try to do this in other jobs too, of doing almost a meditation before I get to the work and try to really clear my head of all the other things that are stressing me by the time I get there. And sometimes it's good to, when you have that separation of pulling out all those stressors in your mind so you can get to the work environment and then really be there in the environment. And that kind of really relates to a lot of mindfulness, being really mindful to be in the environment, um, especially getting rid of that anxiety because a lot of times we bring anxiety from our home life or our other things in our life. But um, Great answer to this question. You know, two people in the chat box, Diane and Robin, also suggested people look at the RAP plans or the Wellness Recovery Action Plan as a way to help manage the stress. Um, and an essential component of the RAP is that idea of figuring out those triggers, like I mentioned, and being really aware. And really, um, I find the biggest thing in the work is to f- create an environment. My colleague, one of my colleagues just recently, she just moved her desk and really re- created her environment there that I think she's not anxiety provoked because she's got it so calm and very nicely decorated. And I think that's a really important thing in a, in a work environment um, to have is to create that environment where you can feel, you know, um, not provoke your anxiety and feel really comfortable. Um, we have a, another question from Mabel. And she writes, I have a friend with a diagnosed mental illness and has not been employed for several years. They want to get part-time work, but is concerned about a paper trail when it's getting paid for her services. Is there any advice about how to direct her? Um, I'm not sure I understand about what what it's meant by a paper trail. I I don't either, and if Mabel could clarify. She may, I mean, there's a couple of directions, just guessing. It may be concern about losing her benefits, a uh, paper trail leading back to that. That's the only paper trail I might be, I think they might be concerned about. But yeah, we'll that's, really where, that's really where finding someone on an IPS team or on a program that's really um, um, well-versed in how much, so, how much money you can make um, to um, many times people um, can make a certain amount of money. Um, before it starts to affect your benefits. So it would be really finding that job that you can, you know, work so many. I know a lot of people will have calculated that I can work 10 hours a week or 10 hours a month. So finding out how much that is would be important. But if there is the burn to work, the the other piece is to even find volunteer work because you want to maybe really keep yourself in the flow of doing something that's so important for our mental health and recovery is being active, doing something that really uses your skills, you're productive and you're giving back to other people. That's going to be an asset when you eventually do get the full or part-time job you want. I'm going to recommend Mabel email us at cyrehab at bu.edu with that same question. We can direct you to someone who can help with this particular or, you know, get you a hold of someone who can help you sort this out. Uh, And that goes for anyone here who has a question that's super specific and they don't want to ask in front of everyone, send us an email. And we have people here who will uh, reply to you and try to help you out as best they can. 
question we have, and I'm just trying to stay in order here, comes from Robin. And she asks, how do we encourage employers to respect peer specialists and treat them more like professionals? Well, that's a that's a real challenging question, but it's all doable. I think um, employer, you know, um, really um, I find what happens is I'm, I'm very fortunate. We have people really devalue the peer work, um, and a lot of it is because we did a lot of groundwork on, um, for example, going in and educating employers and administrators, because administrators are really key about the value of peer specialist work. And I'm a big one for articles, so I'll pull out or I'll go online and pull down a really good review of the literature on the uh, state of the affairs of peer specialist work. And there's some really, really good references I can shoot to you guys that you could bring. And when they read that, they read an article that's in psych services, psychiatric services, or in one of the journals, and they see, you know, there's been this research or these researchers are talking about it. That's a powerful statement, and that's a great tool to bring in. And then bringing in somebody, if it's yourself or you need any help. I've helped people devise little um, in-services for um, administrators and staff because what happens, and I've done a lot of work on this, of going into ACT teams and supportive housing teams and all these different teams that are bringing peers to their, um, you know, to their service delivery and working with the staff to help the staff educate what's the role. That's critical. What's the evidence is one question. What's the role and how it's going to really help augment people's recovery and wellness. You really want to help make that the message. It's going to really augment their work and it's going to help further people's recovery and wellness. And bringing those clear messages and then working through the fears. People have fears that people are going to get sick, people are going to take their jobs. There's all the different fears. Those come out later, perhaps. But I think going in with some good knowledge and evidence and then really helping to be clear about what the role is and how that's really going to help really make their work um, work more effectively to support people's recovery and wellness. Those are the kind of things I would say. Thunderbird at Clubhouse asked, do you have any suggestions on how to educate employers about the needs of their employees with mental illness of different sorts? And then um, scrolling down here, Richard follows up, are there any resources out there for educating employers as well? Yeah, and well, I use a universal design kind of approach to this. I would talk to employers about why you should create a work environment to make everybody's mental health good. So you're not then coming in because when you really boil it down, many people don't need that many accommodations. So um, going in from the perspective of um, the workforce could benefit from, um, you know, they could do X, Y, Z strategy, whatever strategy you might be encouraging, because the workforce could benefit. Because as we know, many people get stressed. Many people have mental health things they don't, you know, come out with. So it's bringing it out from a perspective of everybody could really benefit from having an environment that's really conducive to people's, to really good mental health and wellness for the workforce is the way I like to approach it. Um, and then helping people to know how to then ask for their specific needs. Um, you know, you want to have a flex, if, depending on the work, you want to have a flexible work schedule if that's doable in that kind of work. And that can be really helpful for the single parents or people with children. So those are the way I, I tend to focus in on how to work with employers around, you know, supporting a good positive mental health workforce in general. I just want to take a moment to plug something that the center has just recently uh, released here. It's called the Repository of Employment and Vocational Recovery Resources, which has a different sections for employers, potential and current workers, uh, providers, administrators, and we're building a brand new section for family members. So it's it's a little old right now, uh, the design, but we're overhauling it as we speak, and many of you might benefit from taking a look at that as well for specific resources. And I'll paste a link into the chat in one second here. Move on question. This one was submitted in advance by Kay. Kay writes, what can you do if your 21-year your career ended because of mental issues and you have a physical disability. I'm interested in how to touch on the subject without looking unemployable. So it, it sounds like Kay's ask, um it could be for yourself or someone else, and I guess the gist of what I'm seeing is um, um, 
is that um, your career, the career you were doing ended, and um, so there's some things that are getting in your way of doing that kind of work that you can't do any longer. So um, maybe perhaps um, the idea would be to really try to um, work with someone or really work on, there's a couple, some really good resources you can do this, is to kind of look at what you think you want to do now and really perhaps um, think about what your career was and what are your, you had a lot for a 21-year your career. There's so many skills and capacities and accomplishments you've had. So really to map those out and then see where they're going to fit with something new you want to do and, you know, look at it as, um, you know, finding something new that you've perhaps wanted to do in the past that haven't been able to or finding something that you didn't even know and that would be something maybe you could get um, some feedback from some people. But I think the biggest thing to look at is to really map out your strengths and accomplishments and things from your previous work because those are going to really bring, even if it's a no, new career, many of those assets that you have are gonna be the things you're going to want to bring to your new work. And one of the things I think that's important to touch on is this issue of disclosure and when does it happen and how do you do it? Now, I know it's individual, but do you have general rules about that? Yeah, with disclosure, I, I'm more um, about, and everyone has their own take on it, I believe strongly that it's something that you really only should do if it's absolutely necessary, and it's probably better not to bring that out early on, on interviews and things because um, the, of the stigma and of the necessity of it. Um, and I think... Um, Disclosure is something that um, you want to do very cautiously and really have talked through with someone. And there's some really good stuff on the um, IPS work, uh, the Dartmouth website as well, that can help you walk through how to think that through for yourself as you're, you know, going to a new job or getting a new job. But I'm, I'm under the – I've had the experience that it was better for me to do it very – uh, cautiously over time, and, at, and in many examples, not at all, is to keep it very um, only when it was absolutely necessary. Um, I've noticed a number of people have joined us since we began, so I just wanted to let everyone know that if you'd like to ask a question, you can either type it in the chat box, and we'll be happy to. I'll happy to ask it on your behalf to Peggy, or you can indicate that you'd like to ask it by phone, and we'll call on you and just press star star to unmute yourself. And you can talk to Peggy yourself right now. So it's just not a little conversation between me and Peggy alone. Um, until then, we have another question. This one comes from James. And James asks, how does one know when it's time to go? Uh, to shake the fear or doubts, take new risks, you know, learn a new skill from one secure job to other opportunities? Yeah, that's a great job. That's, that's a fantastic question. Uh question, um, and it's one I'm grappling with myself right now, so it's very near and dear to my heart, um, is um, really, you know, it, it's to be do it in a cautious way, but not to not procrastinate to the point that two or three years later, you're still thinking about it like me, um, but um, is to really um, find somebody who you can have as a mentor and are talk it through a little bit. I think if you have someone like that who can help guide you, it really helps. I find that's helpful when I reach out to certain people. And um, uh, then sometimes you just have to then, once you've made that decision of going through the balance of it is just take the plunge. And it often, um, you know, there's also, there's a lot of times the risk and the anxiety that goes along with it, but just taking the risk and taking a new chance and a new opportunity is a really positive thing. Um, I think always not to burn the bridges. That's what I always encourage people, though, too, is to make sure that, you know, when you're leaving somewhere to leave on good, you know, when I've seen that where people then did step back to the job, too. So, you know, really getting someone to talk it through. And then for yourself, you'll probably know when it's really that time to take that new opportunity and make the leap. That is so true of many people, even those without facing uh, additional challenges in the employment process. And again, I, I'd love to, I can sit here and read the questions that we've had submitted in advance, but again, if anyone here would like to ask a question, I'd, I'd really love to, to get your question out there. 
Um, then we'll go on to another one submitted in advance. This one comes from Karen. And Karen asks, whenever I work an overnight shift, everything in my life gets out of control. What can I do? Yeah. Well, that's a that's a really great question. So you've identified already, you know, this pattern for yourself. And um, then the couple things you want you would want to maybe think about is, for example, is it, um, you know, overnight shifts, is it something you have to do? Because if it is um, impacting your other parts of your life so much um, and you don't have to do it, it may be something you just realize that's just not um, something, a shift that I'm going to take. If it's something that you have to do for some other reason, then the key is that um, really figuring out um, how you can get your um, recuperation time um, to be able to not allow things to get out of control and to have that recuperation period so you can. I always think about it. It's like I do a lot. One of the things in my work is travel, and, and that happens to me. And my, it's Instead of saying overnight shift every time I have to travel, that's when things start to feel out of control. So I started to really really built plan around my travel and really made did certain things around my sleep and my activities and my social contact. I really got a little more control of those things to help make sure things didn't totally explode when I had to make those longer trips that were really causing my equilibrium to be really thrown out of control. So it's asking yourself, do I like I said to myself, do I have to travel for work? I didn't. So I could really cut down and minimize it to a very minimal. You'll have to think about that through. But um, maybe if you don't have to have the overnight shift, it just might be something to not um, do because I think it, it, it has to do with our circadian rhythms too. You might want to realize that it really wreaks habit on that um, if that's not your normal schedule. So hopefully it's something you can change or if you can't, hopefully you can figure out a way to make sure you get back to that rhythm that really will help you feel like in control and feel really well. Say that, and this is just my own personal thinking, is that no one is trapped in any one job. And when James asked that question about how do you know when it's time to go, perhaps it's time to start looking for something different if you can't change the schedule. Um, Mary had a question, and it is, uh, I was told that the ADA will not protect me if I do not disclose it to my employer. Well, with the ADA, is um, you have to disclose if you need an accommodation, and it needs and for to, to get an accommodation for whatever you need the accommodation, you will have to disclose to you the. Um, you don't have to do it to your supervisor, but you have to do it within the you know HR human resources function of the um, employment thing. So that's where you're making a decision. You need X Y Z accommodation and you'll need to get that medical documentation for that. So for that, that's a correct statement there. But I'm just saying, in general, we don't have to go in and blast it on our forehead that we have a mental or substance use issue. There's no, there's no need to do that. Um, you know, many people feel they're, you know, they feel they have to tell people, but it, we really don't have to tell people that. And probably... Um, it's probably better, I was just saying, that it's not useful to do it if it's not a necessity. And if you need a specific accommodation, yes, you'll have you'll have to um, make that um, known to your employer. My own follow-up. If you do need the accommodation, at what point in the employment process would you do it? You know, interviewing on your application after you started? Well, that's something you depend. If, it, if it's something about the essential job function, and it's not, um, and you can't do the essential job function without that. You probably have to do it during that process. So you know, you'll look at the job description, and you'll know in the job description it ha- that's one of the essential functions, more than likely. But those are the kind of things, really, where a supported employment um, worker, whether a peer or non-peer, will be really good to help people sort that through. Richard asks a question, what is the best advice you can give vocational rehabilitation counselors when it comes to helping individuals with behavioral health conditions obtain and maintain employment? Well, I, I think the um, vocation, so, so typically that, so that they're working with people with um, mental health issues, um, I think the biggest thing we can make the message is that it's really important not to discourage people from 
pursuing work because I think that's become a pretty um, prevalent pattern is to discourage people because you're better off on Social Security disability and people sometimes will discourage. So giving them the hope that it's possible and it's can, people can and then helping people to then find the best job match, not putting people in the McDonald's job when they have, you know, a degree or they have some kind of other kind of training or specialty when McDonald's job isn't something that they weren't really looking for. Maybe they want the McDonald's job, and I'm not bashing McDonald's. I just wouldn't eat there. I'm a vegetarian. But um, it's just the job that sometimes they put people into everybody into McDonald's or everybody into this job or that job to help make sure that they're helping people to find a job that really matches their skills rather than putting everybody into like a, either not encouraging people and or setting them into jobs that um, might not be a good fit for people's skills and career aspirations. Typing something, so I'll give them one second here. Yeah. Uh, it says good advice. Thank you. Uh, do you have advice for people about how to follow up, you know, when they've done a placement, how to follow up to make sure it is a good fit with the person and that they're not just saying it's okay? Oh, you mean when they're working about taking the job? We usually follow along supports. Uh, many supported employment programs or will have like a follow-along support from someone. So that's really where a support worker, a person who's a supported employment uh, counselor or supporter can help, you know, keep checking in with people. And I really encourage people, especially for the first couple of months of work, is to um, really figure out whether it's a phone call, an email, a text, to set up a system with someone to do that check-in. Um, I really encourage that with people. I mean, many people do that with their family, their spouse or their friends, but sometimes people who don't have that or need that, have that other support, it's a real good tool to use with people to make sure, especially after the honeymoon period sometimes gets over and then the real stress comes about. And that could be in the two-, three-, or four-month period after the job starts. Great. So let's move on to another question. This one was submitted in advance from Sonam. Uh, they ask about making requests for accommodations in a office setting where the workload is unmanageable for them, but it's also unmanageably high for everyone else around them. And I, I think it's the fear of, you know, this is how it is. You know, how can I ask? Well, um, you know, maybe it's just, um, t you know, really having a um, a, um, a conversation with the supervisor around, um, you know, about this issue, and if the and if the person is, if you're feeling that it's just so much stress, and you know you you know that this is the norm in that work environment, maybe you know, at seeing if there's something else in the agency that could be another job that might be a better fit could be one option. Um, or, you know, really maybe working with someone to see if that if this is like an enduring issue that's not going to change and you know yourself this is just going to make me go home every night and be so depressed or whatever it does to you that's not so positive, making that decision about maybe finding something different that's going to be a better uh, workload match. But I wouldn't just jump ship from the place because this happens in our agency a lot because in my department we have... Um, we work. We have that reputation um, that we work like we worked hard. Like there's a pretty big productivity kind of a thing, and it was just we tended to ha work with people who work in that mode. And then other people sometimes would come to work in the department and see that that just wasn't good for them. And what they would do is find them something in a different part of the agency that didn't have the. And it was just the it was the flow of the people in the work. That's how they worked, and they didn't perceive it as it, but they and the other people just wasn't a good match, so we found something else for them. Now, I really love from you know your work and your life. Uh, it really, it really adds to the conversation. Um, one of the questions that this one is submitted by Bruce. He says the last job I had caused me to relapse from all of the stress. How can I get an idea of what a company will be like without having to explain why? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, it's really hard to ever fully know, probably. But um, it might, if, if at all possible, um, it might be good to ask. And, and we've actually been doing this in our workplace is having people come in for a couple of hours prior to being hired to just, like, shadow the um, people in the job 
Um, and some employers, I, we're doing it now because we just think it's so much better for people to know about who we are and what we do and what to expect. And then we can get a sense of that person, too. So if you can maybe ask them if they had, you know, that opportunity, if they ever in, uh, allowed people to come and observe the work, you know, for, you know, prior, uh, during the interviewing process, or if you know other people that work there, if you can get, um, it would pro- probably be hard be hard to um, know for them to give you other employer people that are employees, but if there's a way you can get some inside from other employees would be a good way. Um, that, that would be the two suggestions I could have is to ask them that question about the pre-employment um, observation. Um, but that's a great question because it's, um, yeah, you just don't always know what the environment, and the stress can just be the work environment or it can just be, you know, different. so many different things. You no, know, one of the things I've been noticing about all of these questions is they seem to get at this idea of a work-life balance, and they're not specifically asking, what do I do to maintain a balance? Do you have advice for people about that, about how to maintain that balance between work and life and keeping, you know, what is that, and how does it work great? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm the, not the person to answer it because I've been considered a workaholic, self-confessed, <laughs> looking for the support group to go to. But finally, actually, just recently, and I mean that was for 20-something years because after being on Social Security and I never wanting to go back, I always had an extra job and always work, 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 work. But thankfully, about a year and a half ago, I started to fi- started to seek some solution to this question, thankfully. So I don't have any expertise, but I just have experience. And um, I'm really finding that, um, you know, really trying to um, balance that out, having finally finding some other things to bring that balance to the work, um, is to just really be sitting down for yourself to know, I, I can work six hours, I can work five hours, and this is the kind of work I like. And just doing that introspection is a really important thing for um, you to do as you're pursuing work or keeping work or figuring out that balance. And that's what I've done. I, um, you know, like I said, I was the overbalanced person in the other, my wheel of work was 90%. Now it's 70, 68, 70, so it's getting better. And it's finding those things that you can really go to that drive you. Like for me, it's swimming and yoga and walking and doing more of those things really helps me. And, you know, it's just finding those other activities that, you know, there was that period about 5 or 10 and 20 years ago, I just thought work was the only thing that should define me because I never wanted to go back on Social Security. But um, now finding those other things that really drive you and then figuring out how to just take the 24 hours of the day you have and making sure you fill them in. The other, I think the other thing you got to think about with the other 24 hours, which has always been mine, is sleep, figuring out what's that right amount of sleep that you need. And that's the one I really, that was one that really helped me a lot was that making sure I knew that sleep. And so if I was going to work too much, though, I didn't, I never um, interfered with that sleep time. And I have that on the calendar, sleep, my appointment with my bed, you know. it. You have to do it, and it, that's going to help you really get that balance a little bit more and then really feel really good when you're doing those other things because loss, loss of sleep can really affect our mental and emotional well-being very negatively and or positively if we get the right balance. I have to admit I am personally guilty of giving up sleep for work many a time. Do you, can you speak really quickly, and we have a question from Michael. Can you speak quickly to how often people should reevaluate their work-life balance? Because, it, you know, you could set it at the beginning during the honeymoon period and, you know, yeah. you find yourself two years later burnt out and ready to, to give yeah. up. I think um, if you have a calendar or you've got a phone that you put it in, start putting it into your route, into your phone or your calendars um, and regularly looking at it at the beginning of the, you know, Sunday when you sit down with your coffee or your breakfast, looking at the week ahead and making sure you're plugging in that time for those things that are going to help you unplug and get that, uh, restore that balance. I think it should be something people should be thinking about on a more conscious, regular basis and, you know, um, or talking to people about on a regular basis. I would say if you can, once a week, if you can't, 
at least every month because, like you say, it can be out of control and then you hate this job that you once loved. Uh, moving on to the question from Michael, and I'm going to apologize to Michael because there is a disease in here that I don't know how to properly pronounce. He says, I developed tardive dyskinesia after I stopped taking Abilify. I took Abilify for five years. It was prescribed for me as a mood stabilizer. I am also out of work and seeking employment. I have a number of interviews that I want that I thought went well, but none of them have resulted in a job offer. Although I try to minimize them, I am afraid that my facial expressions, constant foot and leg jiggling, and animated hand gestures may be observed by interviewers and may factor into why I have no offers. Do you have any helpful suggestions? According to my psychiatrist, there is no cure for the disease, and the best case is to hope it will wear off. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, Michael, I think the thing that might, um, to try to be uh, more conscious of when you're um, on the interview is that probably the stress you're feeling, which you're normally going to be feeling because you're on an interview, could be really causing them the, um, the twitches to come out a little bit more. So start to think more on ways you can either do more breathing, you know, breathing, and then, for example, like with your hands, maybe keeping them in your pocket and or doing things with your um, feet or legs that you know that you can get a little more um, control over them. You won't have full control because people perhaps are often just even thinking that as those are your signs of your anxiety, you know, and they may see it as like being anxious. They may not know that it's part of dyskinesia, which, and you don't need to tell them that, but perhaps being more thought, thinking more about how you can sort of get a little um, more control over things. You may not totally not come about, but at least you have a little more control. And like the doctor said, like the doctor said, they will possibly will go away eventually. Um, but um, being more con- aware of like some breathing exercises and other kinds of things you can do to kind of minimize the twitching um, that happens often, you know, it's involuntary. But um, but by by working on like breathing and maybe putting your hands or holding a pencil or something, doing something with your hand could help it a little bit. Michael, if you have a follow-up question, oh, please feel free to type in. We'll, I'll pass it on to Peggy right now. Uh, Mary actually wrote in the chat, unable to sleep due to the stress on the job. That's always a problem for me yeah. for her about either handling that stress or how to get to sleep at night. Yeah, that's a, a big one. I think maybe just starting to read a little bit more about sleep and perhaps even um, there's some great, um, and I can send it and you guys could put it out there, um, a sleep log. I I help people develop these sleep logs so they can help kind of get into the sleep cycle. So focus more on the sleep, that getting good sleep and when you're going to go to sleep and what's in the environment that might be triggering sleeplessness or not getting a good rest sleep, starting to focus more on creating that sleep environment may be a way and realizing like the benefits of the sleep. Um, You're still going to have the stress at work, but if you can focus on your sleep, it may actually help you to deal with the stress a little differently, but you're also then really assured that you can get a good night's sleep or at least a halfway decent good night's sleep, which really is so essential for mental health recovery and particularly the um, preventing medical things because there's a lot of medical things that happen to us when we don't get really good restful sleep. And and just to jump back, Michael just said thank you. You know, I went, as you talked about having done work on this, you know, sleep and rest, I went out and typed in your name and trying to look for a little pamphlet that you're talking about, and I found this PDF that you, uh, you helped put together with Jen Cohn and Maureen Costa. Jay oh, Udoff. yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that one is good, yeah. And I, have another, and, and I have so, another even better one for that, too. That's good. That one goes over all the physical dimensions, and then I'll send you another one we just recently developed um, that will be really good. And I just linked everyone that uh, physical wellness book Peggy put together. If you go up to our website, um, I'll type it in here, uh, and you go on our uh, resource section, we have, I think, the sleep thing I'm talking about. Um, uh, It also has something on mindfulness that might be helpful. At OACT.org, the Sleep for Wellness Logs. Yes, yes, that's the one. The sleep log is great, and, you know, it helps you to really, we work with people on develop, you know, 
doing that and then really figuring out what's happening and then moving forward then creating a way you can create the conditions in your sleep, you know, environment to help, you know, get that. Whatever it is, some people it's seven hours, some it's six, some it's five. It's always going to be different for everybody. Uh, this question comes from Bonnie, and Bonnie asks, is there a short-term disability for part-time workers with a mental health diagnosis? Part, uh, she's a part-time worker, and yeah. she's, she's trying it with a mental uh, health diagnosis. Is there a short-term disability for her? Does that exist? Or? That um, I'm not sure about. That would That's a question I don't. I would don't know for sure. And Bonnie, if you were to if you're listening, if you email us at the Psy Rehab email address, uh, we can get someone to help you look into it because I know it, it almost varies from state to state as well. So this is it's a really specific question, but we'll try to help you out. Um, Tanya asks, are there tools that you would recommend for building or exploring natural supports and helping employers create inclusive, mental health-friendly workplaces? Um, I think SAMHSA has um, a resource on this. Um, um, maybe we can find that. There, SAMHSA did a big project on this not too long ago um, that might, and it was geared towards employers. So that's a definite, like that just jumps right into my head. And then once that comes into my head, there's like 20 different things that could follow. But that's the resource that I would go to for that. Um, uh, that's one definitely tool because it was like a toolkit. Um, Supportive employers, uh, employment evidence-based Practices Toolkit? I think, I'm pretty sure that's what it is, yeah. I would say that's a free toolkit that, that you can download yeah. off their site, and I'll share it with everyone. But I think in just in general, um, I think it's um, it's just a, um, there is a – that toolkit's a good one, but it's just such a great thing. And if you're working in a place, you can really be that um, champion for that, you know. And we are very big on wellness. We try to help promote wellness in the workplace, um, and that's another um, way to approach it that people in general can really benefit from wellness, physical, spiritual, social, emotional, intellectual, occupational, all the eight dimensions, and that makes the um, – that's another nice way to so make it, like, really for everyone in the workplace. You know, one that I'm noticing out here is there's there seems to be a resource out there for just about everyone, and yeah. it's just finding the person who knows about it. So if you do have a question – you know, ask someone. And, you know, if you don't know, they might know or know someone who will. You know, I think the, the thing is being vocal about what you're trying to find help with and not just keeping it to yourself. Um, Jen uh, wrote in the chat, and this is for Michael, but for the benefit of anyone who's just listening, Jen wrote, uh, anxiety is not unusual for job interviews. Sometimes I find it helpful to acknowledge to the interviewer when I feel like I'm displaying obvious anxiety. Gee, I can't seem to think of the word. I guess I'm a little nervous. And she's uh, Jen tells Michael that they don't have to know that it's TD, but just that the interviewer just assume it's jitter. Yeah, that's such a great point, and that's really what I think they're thinking. And um, so that's just really, because a lot of people will get all, you know, start moving their hands or whatever their nervous uh, thing is, it will start to come out when you're... You know, I think this is, we're kind of wrapping up here. We haven't talked a lot about what employers can do themselves. And could you maybe speak to, you know, a way that an employer can help improve wellness at work? What sort of, uh, you know, policies they can put in place or, you know, programs they can look into? Yeah. Well, the first thing that I would say is they got to look at their health insurance plan that they're offering their employees and making sure it's pretty decent, which that's very hard because it's complicated and doesn't cost bring a lot of cost to the employees. That's one thing we always try to do. Um, but then making sure that it has some decent coverage, you know, for both mental health and physical and wellness things, prevention-type things. Um, we also try to help the, in the workplace try to do certain kind of preventive kind of things, trying to help when you're, um, you know, um, doing things for employees, making sure there are healthy food choices rather than just donuts and really sugary kind of stuff, like because that's going to be an energy drain, and that's going to affect your mood and your stress, having healthy food choices for the different events. Um, you know, understanding that, um, you know, um, getting people to screenings, that's a big one we do a lot with, um, and you're trying to promote that in the workplace is getting people screenings, you know, especially and or, you know, we get around flu season or different kinds of illnesses that people may get. Those can really affect productivity and people's um, mental and, and physical health and wellness. Um, but um, 
yeah, I think um, just promoting the eight dimensions in well, in the workplace, we've done that with a lot of agencies here in New Jersey. Um, we're very big with the wellness dimensions, not only for people with mental health and substance use. The way we look at it is we want to prevent these things. We want to prevent very severe impacts of mental health or substance use, but also also the medical issues that are influencing people. People are dying 25 years. We get into recovery, and then people die. So we want to help people to have better access to, you know, medical and dealing with cardiovascular risk things. So those are the kind of things that employers can do through their health insurances, through their health fairs, through their activities that they do for their employees. Those are just a few. And then really a big one is um, hopefully we can make the employment um, a place that gives people a lot of positive feedback, you know, giving people on a regular basis good supervision and positive feedback about their work and recognition for their work is a real big thing, I think, as well as I think another thing that affects a lot, I think in good ways to go back and get, you know, um, uh, education. Many people could benefit from employers that, you know, help support them going back to school or getting advanced skills and trainings or really good things, I think, in a workforce that work uh, employers to really help people's health and wellness, the few of the things. And I see a couple of people typing questions, and we're nearly out of time. So if you have it, let's uh, get it submitted quickly. I'll ask one more, and this one is for my own benefit as we are building a family section for our re- uh, recovery repository. Do you have advice of where the family fits in into the, all of this, you know, how they can support the wellness of the individual at, you know, at work and helping keep the balance? Oh, yeah, essential family, whether it's your parent or your spouse or um, sibling. Families are often the supported employment person. for the. They become the default person many times, so helping people with their plans and pursuing them and working through the stress, there's the role for families. Um, and then families also taking care of their own wellness. That's the big thing I try to promote with families that I know and my own family is making sure they're taking care of their wellness so they can help be a supporter for someone who's, you know, making that step of going back to work or making a career change. And so um, really helping to support their wellness. But definitely they play a major role. And they'll be a good person if they're doing a wrap. They can be the supporter or help people with wrap. And um, really, again, as it says there, Diane, that self-care for families, I think, because families um, are play that big role in having their own self-care through taking care of their own um, health, physical health and mental health needs is real important. You know, and if anyone's reading who wants to be involved in the development of the family section of our site, if you just email our site rehab, I'll get you in chart uh, in touch with the person running the project. They, I'm sure they'd love to have feedback. Well, that brings us to the end of the hour. Uh, thank you very much for your time and answering everyone's questions, Peg. I really yeah. appreciate it, and I, I'm sure the people have valued your input. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. I didn't know we could go the whole hour, and I'm so excited to see all these questions, and I hope this was helpful and great resources. I'm a big fan of resources, so um, feel free to use what we have, and I'm so benefit. It's I benefited from what I've learned, too. So thank you all very much for the opportunity. Uh, And thank you, everyone, for attending today. There will be more Ask Me Anything About Employments to come. Have a great afternoon, everyone. Goodbye.